pray. Father, we humbly come before your word now asking that you would bless it to us, that you would speak powerfully through your servant, forgive him and all of us together of sin, keep us free of distraction, that we may honor you and may look to you in all of your promises, receiving your grace through Christ our Lord. Amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, last week when we considered these things together, we spoke of Jesus, as we said, as the seed, the true seed of the woman, the one who fulfills that promise in Genesis 3 to come and to make right what had gotten so horribly off track in the Garden of Eden. And uh, the one who uh, pictures for us an end to the kind of strife that we see in the life of Cain and Abel. That we see there in the first generation, we don't see uh, Abel dying of disease, rather we see him dying at the hands of his malevolent brother. And thus the one who comes as the seed of the woman is the one who comes and dies also at the hands of evil, malevolent men to free us from the curse that has entangled us. But as the story of the Old Testament goes on, we see this pressure building as God gives clarity, as he brings things into focus, how he is going to save. And here we see the, really the formalization of how God is going to be dealing with his people in and through the family and the line of Abraham. And we see this tension rising as the story goes and and, and pressure building up. And we know that pressure often brings very good things. You can't refine a diamond or a fine metal without immense pressure. And and what we see there is is because of this this ongoing tension being built up in the Old Testament, what comes forth is the the beautiful crown jewel of the the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, who comes to us as the son of the woman as the son of Abraham, the one to whom we are to give all of our life, all of our hearts in faith and reliance. So we'll look at a few things this morning. We see the story, the sign, and the seed. The story, the sign, and the seed. First, let's think about what we're reading when we come to the the account of Abraham in Genesis. This is really a story of blessing. God is seeking to bless Abraham and his family. I will make you a great nation, he says in chapter 12, and I will bless you and I will make your name great. You see these unconditional, generous promises that God gives. It's a story of blessing. And and we see it coming on the heel of the, the story of the Tower of Babel, that even as humanity is running away from God in rebellion, God, out of his mercy and grace, is going to to take out of this this mass of rebellious humanity, a people for his own possession, and shower them with immense and wonderful blessings. Not only is it a story of blessing, but particularly uh, a couple of specific blessings, the blessing of family. It's a a family-bound kind of blessing. God takes this family for himself, and he guides them through many challenges, but he blesses them, and he expects faith of them, and even obedience Fear not, Abraham, he says in chapter 15. I am your shield and your reward shall be great. Abram says in chapter 15, but what will you give me? I have no heir. And God promises him there in chapter 15, I will give you an heir. A son shall be born 
to you, and he shall be your heir. And then God establishes here, as we've seen in chapter 17, even as we have celebrated and remembered today that God is a covenant God who is God to us and to our children. The children of God's people are born. God is their God. We see in verse 7, chapter 17, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God will be a God to his people and to his people's children. Not only is it about family blessing, it's also a a universal blessing, blessing that uh, goes forth to all of the nations, to all the people of the earth. And you, we read all the way back in chapter 12, will all the nations of the earth be blessed? And so Abram is called then Abraham, the father of many, father of many nations. Blessing of family, the blessing of nations. It's also deeper than just the things that we read superficially about. Take a superficial reading that the land of Canaan and through this, this earthly ritual that the Lord gives to him in circumcision. Is that all? No, well, that's not all that's going on here. It's a, about the blessing of eternal life. What God is doing in and through Abraham is he is preparing Abraham for an eternal inheritance and Abraham's people. There's something deeper going on, and and the Bible is very clear about this, that Abraham understood that what God was doing through these promises, through his work, was granting him an eternal inheritance. So we read in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he, that is Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Abraham was looking to an eternal city. Jesus himself uh, affirms this for us. He says in John 8, your father Abraham, he's speaking to the Jews, rejoiced to see my day. He saw, he looked to the day of the Messiah, the era of the Messiah. He saw it, Jesus says, he saw it and was glad. So that's an extremely important point when we come to Abraham. It's not as though he has an earthly faith in God merely to give him these earthly possessions and then we just spiritualize it all. We don't go back to the Old Testament and say there's all these things that happen on the earthly plane. We sort of spiritualize it. We make it heavenly and that's how we become children of Abraham. Abraham himself had this eternal perspective, understanding that what God was doing was preparing him for eternity. And in so doing, Abraham then provides for us the wonderful picture of what it means to be God's people. That even as God does various things for us on this earthly plane and gives to us many wonderful blessings and even promises that we see God doing the same thing in us that he's doing in Abraham, preparing him for an eternal inheritance. That's what God is doing in his people. Through the gospel, through the Holy Spirit, through what he does in building us up in faith and hope and love. For Hebrews goes on to say, after speaking of those heroes of faith in chapter 13, for here, just like Abraham, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We are to do the same thing that Abraham did, even as he sojourns to seek the everlasting city. For our citizenship in Philippians 3 is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. 
So it's a story of eternal life, the blessing of eternal life. Family, nations, eternal life. And then finally, it's a story of tension. Tension is building up. And the tension is between God's generous promises and the righteousness to which he calls his people. So God has bound himself to, his, to this man in, in chapter 12, 12. I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I will curse. So God has bound himself to Abraham. And, and nothing is going to, to, to make that untrue, right? God does not break his promises. He has bound himself unconditionally to this man. But then we come to chapter 17, the formalization of all of these things. And what does God say? Abraham, walk before me. Be blameless so that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply, multiply you greatly. So there's this tension starting to build because you have these amazing promises that God has guaranteed to Abraham. And in chapter 15, we have God providing this amazing picture with the severed animal parts and, and God, his presence, walks through in that vision that Abraham receives, walks through these severed animal parts as if to say, if I do not fulfill my promises to you, may such happen to me. These were the kinds of promises people made back then. It's an oath-bound covenant. May these curses fall upon me should I fail to keep my end of the bargain. That's what God promised to Abraham. It's an amazing picture. Then we come to chapter 17. Walk before me, he says, and be blameless. Now, kids, imagine your parents say, now this would be a little bit out of order, but they say to you, we're going to get you that present that you most want for Christmas. That thing that you most want, we're telling you now that it's going to be yours. But then the next day, you're a little bit rude or mean to one of your siblings, and your parent says, if you're not a good boy or girl, you're not getting that present. And you say, I feel like he just, he or she, mom or dad, they, they told me I was going to get it. Now there's something attached to it. I don't really understand. Something like that happens when we come to these passages in the Bible that God has promised something to Abraham and he says to him in chapter 17, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant with you. Now walking with God, that's not just a hollow phrase. That's, that's to give your life unto the Lord. Walk before me. Make your ways my ways. One author puts it this way. Allegiance to God, walking with God, means to condition the entire range of human experience by the awareness of his presence and in response to his commands. In other words, all of life is conditioned to the reality of God that, that you make him the central reality of all you do. Walk before him. God commanded this of Abraham. You can go on to read in chapter 18. The Lord says, I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I have chosen him that he would be righteous, that he would walk before me and that I might give him these blessings. And this is what God ends up expecting from all of Israel. He expects his people to walk before him. In Deuteronomy 18, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. In Leviticus 19, he says, you shall be holy. Why? 
for I am holy. So there we have what's going on here. Why is it that the Lord calls Abraham to be blameless, to be holy? Because he is holy. Because the infinitely holy God cannot have ultimately a people who, for himself, who are not themselves holy. Because what is the covenant? It brings us together with God. It makes us to have fellowship and communion and blessedness with him. And so we see the tension arising. God promises. God calls his people to righteousness. Well, what does the sign do? So there we have the story. What about the sign? What does the sign do? Well, what we see is that the sign really does nothing but build this tension and brings us more and more to the emergence of the the seed of Abraham, the son of Abraham. Circumcision pictures for us God's miraculous grace, but also his demand for holiness. God's miraculous grace and also his demand for holiness. Many people won't know that circumcision was actually a fairly common practice in the ancient Near East. Did you know that? Most uh, peoples around, in and around that part of the world, practice circumcision. It, only really that we know of, only the Philistines didn't. So you see that in the Old Testament, the uncircumcised Philistines. They stood out for that reason. But circumcision was used commonly as a rite of passage, as a way to signify a boy becoming a young man at the time of, uh, around the time of puberty. It was to signify fertility that this boy could now conceive. But the way that it becomes a practice in Israel signifies a a very different kind of practice, doesn't it? It signifies God's marvelous grace and his demand for holiness. So Abraham is 99 when God says, you shall be circumcised. So if this is in that region of the world understood as pointing to fertility, the time of being able to have children, men being able uh, to contribute, Uh, to conception of a child, then Abraham being circumcised at 99 points to an unbelievable reality, and that is that God is going to give a miraculous, a miraculous conception of a child. What does Abraham do when God tells him, you shall be circumcised and I will give you a son? What does he do? He laughs, doesn't he? He laughs. Why? Because it's ridiculous Shall I, at a hundred years old, see a son born finally? Shall my wife, more importantly, shall my wife at 90 bear a child? Got a lot of moms recently have had this reality. You want to carry a child around when you're 90? Pretty difficult, huh? And so, what does Abraham say next? God, I've done your work for you. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Look at this fine lad. Here is the answer that you need. I've I've taken care of it. What did we talk about last week? That Genesis traces the theme of man trying to procure a blessing for himself and rejecting the one that God holds out to him. God holds out a blessing. Man says, no, 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 no. I'm going to figure things out my own way. I'm going to take this fruit I'm going to kill the brother that I hate. I'm going to, remember it was Sarai's idea, Hagar, have a child through Hagar. We try to find our own blessing. Abraham believes he's done God's work for him, and God says no. And what that 
shows for us this amazing reality of Abraham receiving the sign at 99 and this promise once again reiterating the promise, you shall have a son, it shall be by Sarah and I will give you this blessing. It points to God's marvelous, miraculous, amazing grace. Only the living God can bring about Isaac. Only the living God can save you and me from our sins. Only the living God can bring Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born of a virgin, the God-man, to come and to bear sin. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, a wretch like you and like me to be saved. Only the living God can do that. And that's what we see in this sign to Abraham. At 99, you will receive what most boys at, age of, at the age of puberty receive. And God will give to you at this stage in your life what you could not do yourself. But on the other side, the sign also points to a call for consecration because now it will be boys not at the age of puberty, but eight days old who receive this sign. What's the significance of that? Well, two things. The first is the eighth day seems to probably point to the idea of a week. He has lived a full week. And the week from the, from the beginning of Genesis, what does that signify? The life of righteousness, of consecration that God calls his people. Live a week like God lived a week of working, being righteous, being holy, and resting. So you have that, but then you also have that these boys much younger than puberty, eight days old, received this sign, which points us to the fact that they were called to a life of consecration. It was a life that was going to be called completely to believe in this God, to rely upon your covenant God, and to give all that you are to him. And that's why we see in the Old Testament various times the Lord calls the Israelites to do what? Circumcise your heart. Cut away from your fleshly heart sin and unrighteousness and rebellion. Deuteronomy 10, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Cut off sin. Live before me. That sign that I have given to you points to this, uh, this amazing reality that I will give to you blessing and I call you to consecration. In these signs, circumcision and then baptism, what we, what we saw today, we see not only blessing, but we see the curse for if they fail to circumcise their hearts, they will be cut off from God's people. In the waters of baptism, what is it that we see? We see that Jesus Christ is our ark through the waters of judgment. But we are reminded, as the gospel is proclaimed to us, if we fail to abide in Christ, if we fail to run to him for refuge, those waters of baptism, those waters of judgment, will then wash over us in final judgment. It's like that picture of the flood. Noah and his family are saved, but everyone else is what? Destroyed in the waters. So as the gospel is proclaimed to us, we are reminded to run to refuge to the ark of Christ and believe in him. The sign carries with it not only the blessing, but the curse. And that is why we have the amazing reality as reformed people of baptizing our covenant children it proclaims the blessing of running to Christ and fleeing to Christ. It proclaims to us the 
the realities of eternity. And it also uh, shows for us their engagement to be the Lord's, the life of consecration that God calls us to. This is why one pastor says all baptisms are infant baptisms, because it's always the beginning of a life of consecration unto the Lord to which the Lord calls us. So that's the sign. Does that relieve the tension that we're feeling? We'll know, and that brings us then finally to the seed, the seed. God says, I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great kingdom. Kings shall come forth from Sarah, from this son who comes from Sarah. Walk before me, the Lord has said, and be blameless. And while that it is true that Abraham exemplifies marvelous faith for us, we don't have to go very far in Genesis to know that he himself does not carry in, in his life blamelessness. He's not perfect. He lies about Sarah so that he can protect himself. In Genesis 20, remember Abimelech comes to him and says, you've done to me things that ought not to be done. You, you told me that your wife was your sister? This is not right. So here you have a pagan king looking at Abraham, the man of faith, and saying, that was not right what you did. And, he, and you know what? Abimelech is right about that. That was an evil thing that Abraham does. And as you go through the covenant line, do we find blamelessness? Do we find exact and perfect righteousness as we go through the story of the Old Testament? No. And so what you have is that God begins to pare down the covenant people and begins to whittle it down, and it's as if the search for that blameless one must be found because it's in the blameless one that this tension is going to be relieved. That truly we can understand that the blessings that God promises in his covenant are to come through this seed who is himself righteous, who is himself blameless, who walks before the Lord. And so you have this whittling down of the covenant people. You, and we read about it in Isaiah. Isaiah is told to go and to prophesy to the people. And largely Isaiah's message was one of judgment. And Isaiah asked the Lord, how long shall I go and proclaim to the people? And God says to him, until cities lie waste, until the Lord removes people far away, and though a tenth remain in it, one-tenth, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God says, until God's people are like a stump. But then we read in Isaiah 11, wonderful Advent Christmas text, which shows us how these things point us to this time of the year. That Jesus Christ is prophesied there for us in Isaiah 11. Hear what it says there. Then shall come, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Something will emerge from the stump of God's covenant people. That as you see time and time and time again, God's people failing, failing to be blameless, failing to have within themselves true righteousness, to walk before the Lord perfectly, and they're a stump removed from their former glory, there will come a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is going to be a man who walks blamelessly, in other words. And then it says, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And righteousness will be the belt of his waist. 
and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. And it's like he, that's a wonderful picture that he ties righteousness around himself. And his life is surrounded with righteousness and faithfulness. Jesus Christ is the true seed of Abraham because he is the only true keeper of the covenant. He is the one who walks blamelessly before the the Lord. He is the one who has righteousness as the belt of his waist. And in him will flow blessing to the nations. It's because this one, we see all of these answers come to a head. Who will be the one who is righteous? The, The true seed of Abraham. And so God's people have been pared down, down to a stump. And a shoot flows forth, and righteousness is the belt of his waist. But here's the, here's the glorious thing for us, that as uh, the story of redemptive history brings us narrower and narrower to this reality of the one, it then becomes refracted through this one that as people from every corner of the earth come to recognize the glory, the righteousness, the wonder of this one seed of Abraham, then God's people then expand back out to uh, contain a multitude from every nation. Glorious things of of thee are spoken. That it refracts through this one who is righteous, and then it becomes a vast multitude. Not only is this one righteous, but he bears the curse. What did we read in Galatians 3? Remember that picture in, in Genesis 15? God walks through the severed parts. It's as if the Lord says, I myself will bear the curse before this promise fails to be given to Abraham. And we read in the New Testament that Jesus Christ did come and bear the curse. So it's not only that he was righteous, but that he comes to bear the curse to take the sins of his people away. And then not only is he righteous and he bears the curse, but he gives the life-giving spirit so that the righteousness that we have as his people who come to him, for as many as received him and who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. For those of faith, in Galatians 3, are the sons of Abraham, so that all who come to Jesus and see forgiveness in him and righteousness in him, what do they receive? The Holy Spirit who then given to us from God the Father, from Jesus Christ, creates in us a life of what? Faith and hope and love, a life of faith-filled righteousness and obedience, which is pleasing unto the Lord. Not perfect, not like Christ's, but true and genuine. And so we come together. What is it that unites the church? What unites the church is that we all recognize together that we do not have that blamelessness that we need. In order for the blessing to flow forth, what do we need? We need to come and give ourselves to the true seed of Abraham, the true son of Abraham. And then we see that God makes of himself a family from every nation of the earth, and that's what that hymn speaks of, glorious things of the earth spoken. It's taken from Psalm 87, where it says, among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This one was born there, they say. Born where? In Jerusalem. People from all over the world, it will be said of them, they were born in Jerusalem. And if you have received Jesus Christ by faith, you too, it can be said of you, that you belong to Jerusalem, that you are one of God's people, 
grafted onto this covenantal promise. And then we see, as we mentioned, not only uh, all of these as we, we come to Christ and it refracts through him the blessing to the nations. And what about this? The blessing of the family as well is held for us in Jesus Christ. That as families, we come to put Jesus Christ at the head of all that we do. And we have this blessing of God, I will be God to you and to your children, that in Christ we can rest in that promise. So you see the immense pressure of redemptive history that brings forth this crown jewel of redemption, this crown jewel of Christ. And as glorious things are spoken of God's people because of what has happened through the seed of Abraham, glorious things must be spoken of him, for he is the glorious one. Receive him by faith and love. Look to him in devotion and wonder. For all that God has done to you, done for you, for me, for us, through Jesus Christ, the Son. Let's pray.